0: Welcome to the third episode of the Crude Street Roundtable, a monthly discussion of newer, recent science fiction novels put out by your good friends at Crude Street. This month, we're discussing Kingfisher, the 27th novel from World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement recipient Patricia A. McKillop. Kingfisher is published by Ace and came out in February. As usual, this discussion will feature spoilers, so we hope you've read the book. We certainly intend that you have. For this episode, the Roundtable is Crude Street podcaster Gary K. Wolfe, Roundtable regular Ian Mond. Myself, Jonathan Strahan, and very special guest, World Fantasy Award nominated writer, writer Nikki Solway, who I'm delighted to say is joining our conversation f- for this month. So, first of all, hello and welcome, Nikki.
1: Hi, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here virtually.
0: <laughs> it is a bit of a, a strange thing. We were just saying for a moment there that it's strange to start off with a, a virtual conversation as the first way of meeting, but it is a pleasure to have you here. Gary you're coming from us down a tunnel in a telephone in Chicago somewhere.
2: Something odd has happened, but something odd always happens in Chicago. So don't mind me if I just sound incoherent. It could be it could be technology or it could be my brain.
0: <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> and, and Ian, you know fellow conspirator on the on the round table, welcome again.
3: Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's lovely to be here um, in my bedroom, talking to you guys. Okay, that just sounds, sounds oddly intimate, and yet isn't.
1: It does. That just... Are we all in bed together? That would be a bit awkward.
3: <laughs> yeah, just a little
0: bit. <laughs> or, or are you implying... Should... Just a little it's just, bit. It's a little, that just sort of added a kind of creepy note to the whole thing, Ian. I mean...
1: <laughs> I'm not in bed, just so I'm
0: at my desk. I am too, I'm in my office. Like you know, Some of us are professional about these things, Ian.
3: Well, some of us don't have officers, wish they did have offices, but don't, and some of us also have two very young children who will be jumping on me if I were to leave the bedroom. <laughs> so, you Fair know. enough.
0: Well, like, I guess I'd start with a quick mm. run around the group and ask you, are all of you Patricia A. McKillop readers? Not Nikki, have you ever you read before? With? Well, I'll start with Nikki.
1: I, I've... I hadn't read her books before. I'd read a lot about her and learned a lot of interviews. So I was really excited about reading this book. And, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting introduction at the at the late end of her production. Mm.
0: How about you, Ian? Have you read MacKillop before?
3: Never. Never. Very aware of her. Uh, you know who she is. Aware that she's a World Fantasy Award winner early in her career too, I think but never read a single word, probably because <laughs> I, I was quite anti-fantasy in the 80s and 90s, and that's, you know, yeah, she wrote a lot. Well, she, that's what she writes, basically. And, Shame um, on you. Yeah, no, it's a prejudice. It's one of my normal <laughs> knee-jerk prejudices that I have. I have many.
0: Yeah, at anyway. least you <laughs> uh, And what about you, Gary? You've been reading MacKillop since the year dot, Yes. Well, I've been reading. I, I, I read The "Forgotten Beasts
2: of Eld" when it came out, and uh, and the Riddle Master. Trilogy. That's all, I know. That makes, oh, thank you very. Much. Uh, 40, actually, the the Riddle Master trilogy began to appear forty years ago this year. So mm. that give you a hint. I, I but I've lost track. I've read her short fiction. She's had a couple of collections out. She has another collection coming out uh, this summer. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I've missed her or four novels, even though I see her two or three times a year, and uh, we have delightful conversations.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to confess, I mean, I've, I've been reading her for years as well, um, and pro- probably starting with, the, you know, back with the Riddle Master of Head trilogy years and years ago, and then picked up again in the mid-90s when she started doing this series of novels for Ace, of which, loosely, I guess you could say that you know, Kingfisher is the latest. Um Okay. that that started with a book called The Book of Atrix Wolf. They're up there, all standalone fantasies, all packaged, used to be packaged in a a unique small-size hardcover with these stunningly gorgeous covers done by Kanuko Craft. Absolutely, lyrically, opulently gorgeous books. Uh, In fact, one of them, Winter Rose, is I think the only book that has drawn me back to a bookstore three or four times to actually end up buying it without even caring what the book is because I just wanted it because it was so beautiful. So, I mean,
2: a long association between Canuco Craft and Patricia McKillop, and my understanding is that each of them gives the other a good deal of credit for their continuing
3: popularity. Hmm. Can, can I just jump in and say, and 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 question given you guys have read, well, 25 books more than I have, the, the reason when I was looking at the, the older books, and look, they're obviously an object of their time, but it looks like there's a there's a tweeness to it all that that's probably what would put me off to pick up you know the Riddle Master series or the Beastmasters Masters of Held or whatever the one that won the World Fantasy what. There's just a, I don't know if that's the nature of just the covers in the 70s and or whether the subject matter is a bit rural and twee and quaint. Is that just me being you know knee jerk uh, cynical, which I isn't think- common.
2: That, that's a fair assessment of, of a good deal of fantasy that looks like this and I think I think it, 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 it's something that I react to too uh, it, 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 the Canuco craft covers are gorgeous there's some Thomas canty covers that are but uh, are gorgeous but but frequently they're associated with fiction which can be a bit precious uh, but I the thing that has always surprised me about uh, Patricia McKillop is that there is a dark site and there is a wit which kind of works against the tweeness and the and, and the um, preciousness that that sometimes seems seems almost inherent in the material.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, I mean, certainly I would say that. I mean, whilst the Riddle Master series is a really, cla- understandably a really classic kind of YA fantasy series, and and even though I don't think it wasn't published as YA back in the seventies, that's really how it comes across. The later books. They're much gnarlier than any sort of twee assessment would suggest. I mean, the the, the craft art, artwork, when seen in the light of reading the books, or considered in the light of reading the books, seems, if you like, more substantial. It ends up getting used for postcards and things because it's very pretty. But the stories themselves mm-hmm. tend to have nothing twee about them at all. They tend right. to be visceral, I think, is, is a good word at times. Um, McKillop is always lauded for the beauty of her prose. I'm not sure this book mm-hmm. has her most beautiful prose, but she always is. And it always feels to me that that almost is seeing the, the, you know, the surface and missing the substance of what she's doing. Uh, the set of books mm-hmm. that started particularly in the 90s with Atrix Wolfen, Winter Rose, Song of the Basilisk, Tarrot, Stony Wood, Ombria and Shadow, those books are all really, really interesting, meaty, major kind of books. Or at least that's my experience. Mm. Hmm. Uh, that's interesting.
1: I was reading about Winter Rose, and Winter Rose is based on The Ballad of Tam Lin. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. And then the Tara Stonywood is the Lady of Shalott, Selkie, story. Yep.
0: So, so yeah, a, and then a,
1: this one. Yeah? This one is Thurian sort yes. of. Pestivalian. Yeah. The is there such a thing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I mean, I think she's always riffed a lot off classic fairy tale mythology. Uh, she wrote a book for a series. You know, you know Brian Froud, who did that book Fairies. Yeah. He packaged yeah. a series of novels for, I think it was Ace back in the nineties. Uh, Brian Froud's Fairylands, and she wrote probably yep. the only memorable book in that set, along with Charles de Lint, and I think for a little while it was maybe seen in that kind of urban fantasy set, even though she never wrote that kind of thing, maybe with the exception of The Night Gift, which is sort of an early-ish novel in that sort of space. But um, that yeah. short uh, uh, Something Rich and Strange, was that the one? Yeah. Something Rich okay. and Strange was the Brown Froud book, yeah. And, and and actually won the Mythopoic Fantasy Award. Now, I have to say, yeah. anything that wins the Mythopoic Fantasy Award to me sounds like it should be the way uh, Ian's... Uh, Describes a little bit twee or something, but but never proves to be the case. And she's been a, a regular recipient of that award over the years because it tends. She tends to com- com, uh, combine classic mythology and fairy tale with a rich contemporary fantasy storytelling kind of an approach.
3: Mm. And just there's a strong uh, gender element to Kingfisher. Is that in her, the rest of her work,
0: Gary? I think it shows up fairly regularly.
2: Well, yeah. the, the recent work I've read of hers is uh, before this is mostly short fiction, and there's a there's a distinct satirical uh, gender uh, attitude towards it. It's, it's, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's very funny, and I thought there were some very funny passages in this one as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think the, the 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 sort of inherited roles that characters. Uh, have from from the Arthurian original is something that she's playing with
0: and I think she's always featured you know strong independent female characters often in non-traditional seeming roles um, as a way Mm -hmm. of analyzing what she's talking about as a way of unpacking the story she's telling Uh, I think you see it in in uh, Kingfisher uh, and you certainly see it in you know, books like Umbria and Shadow and maybe in um, Odd Magic and uh, Winter Rose to some degree. So, I mean, yeah, I think there really is a, a gender element. Uh, she's probably, of a certain kind of classic pe- period fantasy writer, one of the more contemporary seeming an attitude for that reason. Oh, okay.
3: Okay, unpack that uh, further, Jonathan. That, that, that's an interesting comment.
0: Well, I think, <laughs> we're, uh, I think, <laughs> I, I think we're in a time yeah. where people are looking for, quite understandably, uh, inclusive and open, yes. more open-minded, more contemporary kind of views um, uh, about character, about people, about the roles that they can play in society. And MacKillop keeps casting the women that she creates in non-traditional roles and not as a, Hey, I'm doing this. Look at it. But as a inherent part of the story, it's not something that you question. You don't think it's odd that so-and-so is a, I don't know, a hunts, hunts, hunts person or a woodchopper or a business person or whatever else it might be. Even in her, in her one science fiction novel that she did uh, back in the eighties, it's the same sort of a thing. Quite on, you know, quite, Contemporary me even though I have to say it wasn't. You know, Fool's Run was the book. wasn't her most successful novel artistically. It nonetheless, had that same kind of uh, feel to it. I don't know if that unpacks it enough.
3: No, that, that's a great. No, that's a very good unpacking. <laughs> I, I think
2: there's a aspect of this that uh, that worked not only with um, with Macaulay's work, but but with a with a sort of sequence of writers going all the way back to probably The Mists of Avalon and probably before that. And that is looking at Arthurian material, and in this case the story of Percival, and realizing there's not much of a role for women in that story. Uh, mm. I, I, as far as I can recall the story of Percival, the main thing was that his mother raised him in isolation and uh, and was a bad mother and, and he had to get away. So to some yeah. extent, extent, she, she's reinventing the story and giving agency to the women characters that, simply were not very visible in the original.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's...
1: Well, there's, no, there's no mothers in Dutois. In the Dutois version, first of Percival, there's, there's kind of this idea that his mother, yeah, like a fairy tale, she's dead before it starts, or she's gone before it starts, and then there aren't really any women. He goes to the Grail Castle and encounters the Fisher King, and I don't think there are any women. <laughs> and then he died before he finished it. So that if he was going to encounter women in the future, that he never gets
3: there. So, uh, so yeah. so, so, so I know possibly jumping to the book, but see, this is Arthurian Percival. I know, I know only what pop culture has told me, which is okay. probably highly inaccurate because it's not really yeah. of my. It's not well. It's not really of my culture. So. Sure. Uh, you know I, I, I don't I don't it doesn't resonate with me uh, other than you know as I said Walt Disney type versions of King Arthur but um, so, the, so so I assume there's a, a whole bunch of Easter eggs in Kingfisher that I mean obviously Fisher King Kingfisher I got that and Merle yeah. Merlin yeah I got that too um, mm. but other things that I probably would have missed I mean does Sevaluna mean anything does, does, does do any of the the names uh, the religious names mean anything, because because uh, they would have gone right over my head. I ask. Mm.
2: Well, some of them, some of those come from uh, you know other mythologies. I mean, Wyvern mm. uh, and, and and Ravenholm are, are, are Northern European mythologies, I assume. Mm. So, so to some extent, I think she's she's making more or less playful allusions, but as with any mythological-based fantasy, I'm sure that she's well aware of the fact that the majority of her readers won't even be aware of the story of Percival.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. But then sometimes I felt like maybe you have to have some awareness or go and Google it before you really well, – before it resonates strongly and, and enough, maybe. I don't know.
0: For, but this, for I knew, this particular book?
1: I don't know. I was thinking about the – uh, are we allowed to talk about the book yeah? Well, we well, yeah. certainly
0: can. I mean, yeah. uh, and maybe sort of you know, adding our impressions of it as we go. But you were saying yeah, Please do continue.
1: Oh, Okay, so I was thinking about the you know the parade in the in the Kingfisher Inn. You know that parade of the. What is it in the book? A gas The fry,
3: the fish, during the fish fry. Friday,
1: during the fish fry. So that's straight out of de straight out of Percival, where the, the, when when Percival gets to the to the Fisher King's castle, he stays there for, through this feast, and during the feast there's this procession, this kind of weird procession in which they pro, um, progress in front of him, carrying, oh, I'm trying to think. A, there's a bloodied sword. Well, they give him the sword. He has a candelabra, a bleeding lance, and the Grail, and it goes through the feasting hall. I think at least three times. And Percival's big failure is that he he doesn't ask what's going on. He doesn't ask what's happening at all. And then and then he goes to sleep. And when he wakes up in the morning, the whole Grail castle is in ruins, and the countryside's in ruins, and everyone's disappeared. Yeah. And his quest is that he has to he has to find again the Grail Castle and find again the wounded king or the Fisher King and heal him. But, but as I said, Khoetian died before he finished the book, so that the book, that's where it ends. That's it. <laughs> 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 so it's in the 12th century, but then there's a later version by, um, um, what's his name, Wolfram, in German, in German, and in his version, Percival does return and heal the Fisher King. So, so, that parade in the in the Friday night fry up comes from those texts,
3: those twelfth and you know so 13th completely over my head. I mean, <laughs> I just read it as a fan, a fantasy moment, not as anything cultural, mythological. I mean, obviously mythology, but yeah, completely over my head. And, and yeah. I didn't make the connection that Pierce uh, and Percival. You know, that, that's why I never Googled it. I just. I just noticed the bits of Arthurian that just seemed – and it will be obvious to anyone because if it's obvious yeah. to me, it'll be obvious to anyone. And I just went with, well, this must be just Arthurian stuff that I just don't know about.
1: But isn't it I interesting? There's like, that Arthurian stuff that's in the public kind of mainstream awareness. Of, as you say, that comes maybe from, I don't know, Disney and that TV show Merlin and, and those kind of things. But those older stories, she's also playing with, I think – you know, in lovely ways. I mean, that was, I really enjoyed that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there,
2: there, there's a tradition of Fisher King in in modern fantasy. There's a Ten Powers novel. Well, there's there's a weird Terry William movie. Um, so so yeah. there's, there's kind of a current uh, echo of, of, of these stories in pop culture, yeah. not just this.
1: And is he wounded always? Does he have that wounded foot, or is wounded yeah. groin at his
0: times? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing I'd say sort of, early in the conversation about this book is one thing that MacKillop has done over and over again, I find, is she takes an immersive approach to unfolding the world that she is telling you about. She doesn't lay it all out for you. You are supposed to be disoriented. I don't think it's important, Ian, that other than... In fact, even if you don't make the connection between Kingfisher and Fisher King, I don't think that's Mm. supposed to be important to reading the book until you get to the point in the book where it becomes important, and she unfolds enough for the story to work. Mm, I think so, too. And I think that does mean it, it can be you disoriented. Can so at
1: times. Sorry? Yeah, I was thinking, like, did you think so, Ian? Did you feel like it worked, even though you weren't familiar with those?
3: Yeah, I think I think. Well, yeah, yeah, this will get, yeah, this gets to my critique of the book, I suppose, but yeah, I think in terms of uh, a narrative, it worked fine. I understood what was going on. I suppose what disoriented me... <laughs> Well not you're on the your own Grail Quest. Sorry?
1: You're on your own Grail quest, so you're meant to be confused. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, but well
3: well yeah, true. But what disoriented me was this sudden emergence of technology of cell phones and four wheel drives. And which at first I um had an issue with, then started to like and then had an issue with again. So I, I vacillated um because I actually thought originally um that chapter one and chapter two were set in different uh, one was set in a secondary world, that is chapter one. Mm-hmm. That's the first chapter when we meet meet peers, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then chapter two when we meet uh, – oh, my God, I've forgotten her name. I had it written down Karen. too. Harry? Karen, yeah. I thought that was set oh. in our world and that this was going to be a portal fantasy, only to find out – no, <laughs> I, I was confused when I meet two chapters later. I thought, wait, what? And then I realised, no, they, that's, that's the world. This is a world which has um, – technology uh well it has twitter and social media and well not twitter specifically but social media and all that sort of stuff and it says it might as well be 2016 earth for Mm. all intents and purposes now that i found both disorienting then i liked it and then i stopped liking it for which we can go into more detail later but 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 yeah that i was more that that i found disorienting than the actual um arthurian stuff which i just went with Flow on that because when I don't understand a fantastical thing, I just, well a mythological thing, I just assume you know fantasy. Go with the flow, fantasy stuff, and it'll all make sense in the wash, which it does here.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess. I, so, I, you know, I, I was, Gary,
2: no, you go ahead. Gary. Go ahead. <laughs> I was. Going, I enjoyed the uh, the opening, very opening scene where you basically have a bunch of knights tumbling out of a stretch limousine where the gps has been working or and they don't know where they are uh and i thought uh, it, it was a fairly comical opening and it reminded me actually it reminded me of a similar scene and of all things the um the neil jordan film a company of wolves based on the angela carter stories where at one point little red riding hood is confront, confronted by a rolls royce pulling up in the woods next to her mm. and and it's partly playful and it's humorous it began to bother me a little bit in the sense that I couldn't figure out... I'm not I'm not obsessed with world-building the way a lot of fantasy readers seem to be, but I couldn't figure out how this world sustains this kind of royal economy and a kind of industrial economy at the same time, and who's running the cell phone networks. Um, <laughs> I finally kind of gave up. Well...
3: Yeah, well, look, you know, well, that's the thing. I actually felt like an idiot later on because, you're right, there's a limousine in the first chapter, but I didn't Mm -hmm. pick up on it because it didn't read like a limousine. I thought it was a sort of metaphor or it's only, yeah, I felt like an idiot uh, not picking that up and then realising, no, no, that that actually is, we're talking GPS, limousine, this is actual technology. And then, yes, I had the same thing of, okay, so who sustains this side of the economy? Because it's never mentioned in any way. It just, it exists. and. uh, you, you sort of start to flagellate, flagellate yourself a little bit, thinking, oh, stop being such an anal retentive, world-building nerd and getting worried about these sorts of things because, <laughs> you know, just go with it. And yet it just, just gets in the back of your mind. You think, well, uh, it, it, it just keeps bother- well, bothering me anyway. And I couldn't I mm. couldn't walk away from it completely.
1: So you just feel like they didn't knit together for you? Is that
3: the Sorry?
1: Kind of- So. Is it just that they
3: didn't knit together for you those kind of two layers of the world or two? Just kind of yes, magic, yeah. Form? I think it's the middle part of the book where it, it, mm-hmm. it stopped. It didn't knit together. I could sort of buy it when they're when they're in um, is it Kimura Bay or Shimura Bay? Or however, you, I always get that oh. pronunciation wrong. But I could buy it then. But when you get to the middle of the, we actually get to the, the kingdom, so to speak. Uh, it, it, it stopped making sense to me. Um, the, the world stopped feeling real, as a real place. It felt like an affectation a bit.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't have that feeling, but I have to say, I fought this book for the first quarter of it. I really did. Um, I struggled with it. I was partly enchanted with it. I partly really didn't want to read it. Um, and I think it was because it, the world... Did, you know, I kept trying, like a science fiction reader, I think, to make it make sense, you know, where am i am i in our world or am i another world i don't care where i am i just want to know where i am if i'm in, if i'm not in our world how do all of these commonplace modern things end up there how do you have cell phones how do you have chrome how do you have stretched limousines how do you have whatever else and yet also have nights in a castle and all this and then there's the whole thing we haven't, haven't even touched on the whole food angle and cooking and kitchens and all that I'm trying to go. Oh, I love the food. I love it. I love it. I love yeah, so did I. No, that's
3: I this food's the best <laughs> oh, bit. Yeah, I was so
1: hungry when I was <laughs> <laughs> constantly passion. hungry. I
3: remember
1: we put on like ten kilos
3: just reading the book. <laughs> except for I, I, absolutely the book. same experience. I was eating. I was eating while reading because it just yeah. got me. That all that Heston Blumenthal stuff just blew me away. Not that you know the Stillwater stuff. It all.
1: Stillwater stuff. I was stuff.
3: Like, yeah, it just just start it starved me. My stomach was rumbling because of that book. <laughs>
1: Well In the end, anyway, what I've done to, that before.
3: Sorry,
0: yeah, no, done what, what, it's Okay, what? we're all talking over the topic. I know. What were you saying, <laughs> Nikki?
1: What does she do? Food? Oh, what has she
0: done that before? With food? Not that. Yeah. Not that I particularly recall as a major feature of her work. No, and it's actually.
3: Okay. You know,
0: I mean, I think one of the most beguiling things about the book, I will say, on the kind of the world-building element, what I first of all realised was you. Ha- and I would say this, if, if you're mad enough to be listening to the conversation and you've not read this book, <laughs> you have to yeah, just well. not care about how that adds up. Yeah. Because the adding up of it yeah. isn't the point. Near as I can tell no. the point of it is to differentiate uh, the Wyvern world from the Raven world as material yeah. in it. And other than that, it's not particularly important. Now, I might be wrong. I'm well, a different reading, but that's, that's how I felt about it.
2: Yeah, Nikki. Well, to some extent, I thought the apart from the overlay of Arthurian romance, the, the novel is really a novel about three different restaurants and three different kinds of restaurants, uh, and, and and one of them is ver- is a very ancient mythological restaurant that has the procession uh, coming through it. At, uh, uh, I forget the name of that. Then you've got exactly. this con- contemporary molecular cuisine guy, and she must have. I, I I don't think. Have eats like that, but there are a couple of restaurants here in Chicago where you do actually make white froths out of uh, egg yolks and then deep fry the froth so it becomes... Uh, all that stuff is real, machines. <laughs> <that they are laughs> and I thought that was absolutely fascinating because this is the post-contemporary world of cuisine as opposed to the mythological world of cuisine, as opposed to the one other restaurant, which is owned by Pierce's mom, who gave up sorcery to become a cook. And I thought that was just charming. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. well, I have to say as well, just a, a complete aside, she must hate the whole Heston Blumenthal thing. She, I
3: whole, gather. The yeah.
0: whole molecular gastronomy, she must hate it to have done
3: that. She must. I know. This, The whole idea yeah, this that you, the more about... you eat of it, the thinner you get. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: This is all about the kind of romance of deep-fried fish and deep-fried <laughs> well, olives, deep any. If- ride
0: <laughs> it's, it's it's the romance of to to fish
1: and chip shop and get you know and have a beer and
0: but it, it, it's it's the so romance there... of plenty isn't it
1: yeah
0: it is but it's 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 telling you that the renewal of
2: the world comes not through molecular gastronomy but through the friday night fish fry yeah
1: Absolutely. And isn't that also kind of a little bit class-based? There's this real sense that the Stillwater stuff is very, I don't know, nouveau riche and, and odd, whereas, you know, Hel- Eloise, 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 out in the misbegotten bay is cooking, you know, slow food. She's she's doing this kind of back to the earth. Exactly. It, 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 on the pier harvesting crabs and she's growing the vegetables and it's very... You know, family-oriented paddock to plate, we call it here. Do you call it that in the States? I don't know. You know, that really kind of locavore stuff. So it's kind yeah. of about class-based and wealth-based, but also this competition between cuisines, between those kind of styles of cuisine and the cultures that, that operate around them. You know, and Stillwater's like, is can't order food in his restaurant. He controls everything. He makes all your choices for you.
2: I have that- no doubt if, if, if we took some serious foodies who I know and had them read this novel, they would line up on opposite sides of the room shooting at each other. Yeah, like, yeah. They're completely opposed views of what cuisine and cooking should be.
1: Yeah, good food, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Stillwater is, is the Blumenthal. He's this kind of guy who food is an art form. It's not about nourishment at all. It's just about his performance and his skills and his techniques, and also about machines that produce weird food. And the point of the food is, is actually not its taste, or, or it's, I think, more that stuff about nourishing the body. Whereas the stuff at the Friday Night Fish Fries is about community, all these people coming together in the kind of weird bar fish fry thing. And then the other one is about family, I think, maybe. this kind of more, you know, yeah,
3: And that's how, that's how I read it as well. And, of course, family is a very important point to the whole novel and that's why that, that slow cook aspect is it re- that resonates throughout and that's, uh, yeah, I, I mean clearly, yeah, <laughs> MacKillop has chosen sides here when when, <laughs> you, you, when you have that scene uh, where she's cooking in the kitchen using the machine, still waters machines and, and yeah. basically they, they're all just different weird inventions and no matter what you put in, something remarkable comes out, which just pokes fun at all the, the water baths and thermo yeah. mixes and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I had, I laughed. I laughed quite a lot because you know, as if to say, there's really no art to this at all. Just, just literally throw any crap in these machines, and something remarkable will come out. Which, which I know Heston Blumenthal, if you were to read that, would 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 probably you know get very angry. But, um, yeah, still, it's, I laughed a lot, and I felt hungry because even even that stuff, even that 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 sort of wispy, cloudy. Fried, fried food stuff. The the, the gastronomic stuff made me feel hungry. I, even if even I personally wouldn't want to eat that stuff, it, it, I still. The way she describes it, that's when her writing is at its peak. When she's yeah. describing the food, it's just extraordinary. Really, I wish yeah. the whole book actually had been. I, 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 that's part of it. I wish they hadn't gone to the city. That oh, with the yeah. whole thing with the knight's quest and looking, you know, the king, the whole political shenanigans in the middle of the book, mm. that to me it felt that also felt a bit out of place. I know it all ties in in the end, but I was so enamoured by all this food <laughs> <laughs> and putting on weight as you and Nikki, uh, I, I sort of got disappointed when it became a bit more, I don't know, straight down the line. Even, I mean, yeah, that's when the gender stuff is brought in, but. It's still. It, it wasn't as interesting to me. I don't know, but but felt.
0: don't you think that that's actually really kind of essential to the overall structure of the book? That so much. Yeah, it of, is. So much of this story is going from the small and personal to the large, and then back again. It's the yeah. you know, it, It's it's the rural life to city life, and then back to simplicity. It's valuing those kind of simple one on th- one things over the, the large, and then even showing those people that. That is what you know they may value you know because that's that's how you know sort of if you like the city and its attractions shatter family, leaving the city restores them mm. uh going to the city, magic breaks, leaving the city it it, it is restored and, and it's, you know in in a separate place things that are valuable are hidden away from it rather than kept to it, you know. And and without that sort of structure, what do you do? Do you sort of... I mean, I understand the great attraction of, you know, you're starting in, in Desolation Point at this restaurant, which is warm and homey and has all those elements. You go to uh, Shimura Bay and you go to the Kingfisher Inn and it has all those elements as well. And there's that part in the, early in the story where you think Pierce could almost just be drawn in and stop there and that would be yeah. the whole of the thing. That's all it would have to be. And it could be this warm, intimate kind of very self-satisfied kind of story that would be kind of enjoyable to read but wouldn't have much beyond that yeah uh mm. but by drawing him away into several and showing you little bits of it of what make it attractive and yet s- still pushing them back out of it it gives the rest of the, the world Meaning and resonance. Uh, you, you, you see why, for example, you know P- Pierce would ultimately choose not to end up at Arthur's court. Uh, you, mm. you, you see why um, maybe uh, I think Damon, you know, the uh, the uh, prince yeah, the prince, may not go back, and also the mm. Baroness. Baroness, is it? It's a Baron. The Baroness, who's a really intriguing, interesting kind of figure in the book, because she
1: means Scotia Mallory or
0: Scotia. Yeah. Scotia? I like Scotia, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think she's yeah. a really interesting character. Because yeah, I liked her. Because she's this moment of clarity in a fever dream. She's mm. always still and firm and clear. When Damon, who's one of the princes in the book, we've not really explained the plot very well on this to so someone listening, um, yeah. when, when Damon is drawn into another world, uh, into the, the other world of, of Raven Home or whatever it is he it's he only sees the world clearly after that point again when he's in her company Mm. yeah and she's solidly in connection with herself with her past with the rhythms of of nature and the moon all that kind of thing with her role tying with the goddess and she's and she's this really strong fundamental kind of character so she's this moment Mm -hmm. of clarity in the story which I think is really valuable and important when everything else is going around. And also one of those one of those moments that stops drawing it into the tweeness that you feared, Ian, I think. you know, Because the the version where Pierce leaves Desolation Point, goes to Shimmera Bay and, the, and Kingfisher, and stops there, and lives away, his life away as a foodie without anything else happening, is the twee version, isn't it?
3: No, it is. It is. But, and look, and this comes back to, I suppose, the Percival situation, that... When you when you look at the plot as a whole, you go, wait a moment. He didn't actually ever have to leave because everything he needed to to stop Stillwater was right there, and that the filching of the night.
1: No- the- oh,
3: sorry. Sorry, no, no.
1: Well, he has to go and find his father. His kind yeah, of, but there's, this, yeah. there's that that other plot about family, right connections, and he needs that that sense of what he's loyal to, and and I think he becomes this. Um, I don't know, what would you call that? Like the thing that reconnects his father and his brother, mm-hmm. Le- Leith? Leith? I don't know how you say that name. And Val to his mother, to Eloise. And I think that reconnection between the two, um, between the Kaluna, you know, the feminine watery goddess stuff and the masculine Sevaluna weapons thing is is also what makes him able to, yeah, to, to restore the Fisher King, although yeah, he doesn't
3: King. So spoiler alert! I oh, should. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, you. Right. I understand. Look, I, well, who? I, you... I, I, I hear what you, I understand. I understand what you're saying, and you're right. Except uh, to do all that, she also introduces Damon, Prince Damon, because then there's that yeah. whole secondary story, which then also ties in because because it's connected to Stillwater, and, and yeah. it's all fine and good, and it all closes well. I, I just I, look. I'm sorry. I just got so sucked into to Carrie's story because she's the one who disappears. Uh, in, in a sense, she, by moving to the city, her story stops for a good chunk of the novel, and I yeah. really enjoyed her character. I enjoyed her journey. And then when we come back to her, yeah, it, it feels like, in a sense, no time has moved on, other than the fact that she's been working at Stillwaters and not telling everyone that she's doing so because, you know, they would be horrified by this. But mm. uh, And I wanted to know, it, it's, I know what you're saying, about Jonathan, about Pierce staying... Uh, in Shimmera Bay, and, and it would be Tweed, but it was actually Carrie's story that really was got me into it. And that's where I, I suppose, my partly the food and also her story, that's where the disappointment came from. I'm not saying it's, oh, but, you know, at uh, the uh, end of the... Uh,
2: just parenthetically, an observation that is something I have respected and admired about McKillop's work, and that is, there's a great deal of restraint in it. There's a lot of stuff in in this novel, and a lot of characters we haven't even mentioned yet. Yeah, Short novel. And uh, the Shimmera Bay, uh, I, I can see any number of other novelists in which the whole Shimura Bay sequence was volume two, and we don't even get to several Luna until volume three. This could have been a much more leisurely, um, frankly, overblown novel, and it's, uh, it, it's a surprising amount of this stuff happens in a short amount of time.
3: Oh, I, I agree. No, I appreciated that, Gary. Don't worry. I absolutely appreciate it. I could see, yeah, where you could make cuts uh, where you could add an extra hundred thousand words and and make this into a duology or a trilogy without too many because she does she packs an absolute i mean there's all this political shenanigan going on that's between different religions between different uh between the old the old cast and the new um, king arden's whole situation that could have been an entire book on its own let alone you know a middle part of a novel so um yeah, no. I appreciate the fact that she's packed it in. I, I mean, for some people that might be a little annoying. That you know, it could have been, you know, to, to use meta- food metaphors, it could have been get well, with wine anyway. It could have been given a chance to breathe a bit more. But uh, no, I actually appreciated that.
0: I kind of felt that. I mean, the journey to, to Arden's court, the the journey to Sever Luna, the time spent there the the playful way we're introduced to the worlds of the of knights, other than those who just sort of passed through Desolation Point earlier on, are all really important to establishing the tone of the stories te- that, that MacKillop's telling. They're all really important to how we're going to come back to um, Shimmera Bay and how we're going to feel about it when we get there, how we're going to value it. Um, we have to have that contrast. I mean... I guess you could have recast this whole story as a novel about Carrie and her journey. And yeah. that, that wouldn't have been invalid, but it just wouldn't have been this sto- this book. Yeah, true. And I don't think it's lesser for not having done that, though I see the attraction in it. I mean, certainly, Carrie's an enormously attractive character, I think. In fact, mm-hmm. if, if you like, one of the f- characteristics of this book, I don't want to say it's a fault, uh, McKillop introduces a vast cast of characters, really, Uh And only builds three of them, maybe. You know, Carrie becomes three-dimensional. Pierce becomes Um, three-dimensional. I'm not not sure if Damon Damon does. The rest of them tend to say somewhat lesser well-developed, shall we say. You know, and that's what keeps Um, you on the track of the story. Unless you guys disagree. Did you feel that she did a more thorough job of that?
1: I was really... I think I really was... I think you're right. But I think what I became interesting is that the relationships between the characters are really important and they're all kind of weirdly triangulated. So, you know, Pierce is the son of Eloise is kind of outsider, but also Leith, who's the, what's the, what's the right term? Who's the, the lover of the queen. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) His husband is the father of Damon. And so that, that all of those relationships become really important, in how you know, for me partly mm, for me partly what Percival discovers for us while he goes to Sever Luna and meets all these people is those relationships that become essential to how the novel's resolved in the end. That it's it is like maybe underneath it's about the relationship between Wyvernborn and Ravenhold and how to resolve those yeah. Between the feminine and the masculine, between the cauldron and the knife, or the sword, what is it, a knife that he steals?
3: It's a knife. Yeah, yeah. it's a knife.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you can't really understand those until you understand all these really complicated relationships. But the people aren't as important as their functions in the family, weird Uh, family, tree thing. uh,
2: uh, And Jonathan, you earlier mentioned uh, Dame Scotia, who is
1: there as
2: a emblematic character. She's not developed as a in, in, in the way that Carrie is or the way that Pierce is, but she serves the function that she needs to serve uh, in a kind of mythic, emblematic way. I don't want her to be much more of a complex character.
1: No, she's awesome. She's the Brian of Tarth. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's who I kept picturing.
3: <laughs> That's exactly how I saw her as well. That, that, so- that, I, just, I actually literally imagined her as... Uh, the actress in, from Game of Thrones. That's just bang, it was immediate. Ah. <laughs> that's really cool. But
1: she also has that name, Mallory, which is who's the author yeah. of The Death of Arpa. And yeah. she has that family tradition of being um, a storyteller, so, you know, so mm-hmm. she's looking for the story of her ancestor. Yes. It's not one of her things in the library and the maps and stuff. And she's looking for the story that will make sense of herself. And in a way, that's what she's kind of offering everyone else here's this story that will make sense and
3: she's there to witness that's right i'd actually forgotten that that's that little thread running through that she constantly yeah she's looking for that story about yeah. this this uh, this disre- well sort of a legend but also a bit of a debauched yeah, legend of her yeah ancestry.
1: which reminds me of mallory of course because mallory was in prison when he wrote um lamort
0: so to some degree what, what, i want to ask you guys it, who is the? Well, no, let me rephrase that. Who do you guys think is the Fisher King in this story? Still, still, water. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Because he's because he's stabbed yeah. in the foot, which is a classic kind of a thing for the Fisher King.
1: And yet, yeah, the Fisher he, King is yeah wounded in the in the foot and by the sword usually. But he's
0: not restored. No, well
1: he he is. She remember she like a massive spoiler alert. But the goddess comes Kaluna, yeah, I suppose yeah. it is. And pours the water, and then he becomes living. He becomes this living thing instead of a dead bundle of sticks.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah. yes. I mean, I should tell you, you... I mean, I, I struggled with this book enough that I only finished reading it an hour and a half before the podcast. <laughs> 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 at least you finished it, because otherwise it's ruined. <laughs> uh, well, no, well, what I've learned with the way McKillop sometimes structure these books is, uh, is that she will, on, she will write stories that only reward at the very end. I mean, uh, there was a book of hers, Odd Magic. I'm pretty sure it's Odd Magic. Yeah, which no, it's Ombre and Shadow. Ombre and Shadow is a book which has two plot strands, and at no point during the book do you think it will ever work out or be a good book, until you get to the last chapter, and she nails it so decisively that the entire rest of the book makes sense, and you love it, but you're disoriented and unhappy with it the whole way. That
3: sounds like life. <laughs> yeah, it does. Brilliant.
0: I, 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 don't I don't know because when you get to the end, the it all seems inevitable that it's going to have worked out. If you know what I mean. And when you look back, you go, well. Of course, this is all what's going to get. And I see where you're giving me the story elements, but I sat there. I mean, to, even to a very much lesser extent with Kingfisher, there's an element where you're going. How's this going to work out? How's that going to work out? How's this stuff with, you know, you know the the. Uh, Half, you know, the step, the half-sun prince who is apparently related to, to the to the Raven world, going to work out against what's happening in Chimera mm-hmm. Bay because we keep going back there, so that has to work out. Mm-hmm. And how's this going to work mm-hmm. out against what's happening with Arden and his court because that's going to happen. And there's still always Pierce's mother looming in the background. You know, and, yes. and and she does loom right because plainly, I mean, you mean, yeah. and she sort of this this power that has passed a little bit. You kind of get the feeling right at the very beginning, as because that's why she's in up in this sort of little desolated point, just cooking at a restaurant. Surely, you know, her day has passed, and then as the story unfolds, it becomes she something much more significant in the story and in in terms of power and everything else, and and then gives, even if the story has resolved prior to her arrival at the end of the story. It's her arrival that gives its entire emotional grace note and kind of uh, power to the end of the book. I think more mm-hmm. so. Yeah, than I, I, just, just, yeah I agree.
3: Those last five pages are a real punch in the gut. They're very powerful.
0: Mm. And, and to some degree, I mean, you, you talk about, Ian, about not going to Luna, but you couldn't earn that without having gone to Luna.
3: I know, and you're right, and you're all right. I just. I like Harry so much <laughs> and, and, and... I couldn't I can't help it and, and 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 there's um there's less food stuff in Seuna so yeah. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: yeah. <laughs> but but I
3: agree on Severluna. reflection you need to go there obviously <laughs> you clearly need to go there because the whole family theme and both disruption and and also that lovely red herring where and maybe it wasn't it's not a red herring for someone who knows the mythology but this idea that you assume that Pierce is going he he's um he's gonna be the, his brother is is Damon you, you just assume because they're both uh, don't know who their mother is, and that uh, and that this whole story around Damon's mother being that she she died is was a lie. I just assumed it's a lie, and that actually it is Heloise, and the King is lying to Damon about it. But no, no, they, they, i so it was a red herring for me because I assumed that yeah. they were related, but no, no, he's related to Leith. So. Maybe that was obvious to everyone else, but just it wasn't to me. And, and and that's all happening in the Sever Luna stuff. And that's important. I get all that. It's just yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to repeat what I've said already. But but <laughs> you uh, but you're, but, but you're <laughs> right because because it all does tie together beautifully at the end. I mean, yeah. what what feels like a bit of a mess at times just absolutely comes together. And each of the three, Damon, Carrie, and uh, and and Pierce, all get well developed really great i mean just just the the scene of 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 heloise coming into the the kingfisher to to meet her her once lover has well were were they married like no you know no yeah how powerful is that even if that scene is very short how powerful is it it's just it's just brilliant look i mean the 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 magical battle uh with Stillwater was good um but but it doesn't hold a candle to that those last few pages and uh and 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 yes, it makes everything else work because of it. So yeah, exactly. What, in, in other words, just repeated what you said, Jonathan.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you what if it, and I don't know if this will mean anything to each of you particularly, but was there something in this story that you didn't get that you wanted as you read it? You know that it, that it didn't deliver in the end.
1: Recipes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Sorry,
1: that's a secret. But...
0: <laughs> oh. I mean, am I the only person who felt the best way to read this book would be to, in probably late fall, travel to either the American Pacific Northwest or to the main kind of coast kind of area, drive through some small villages, small towns eating chowder and restaurants while you're reading the book? Yes. Yeah. Because you want to be somewhere oh, yeah, it's that... raining and the food is wonderful but simple and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, everybody wants
2: restaurants like that and I I can attest that there are restaurants like that in obscure out of the out-of- the way places I've been to some of them there's a restaurant in eastern Tennessee a hundred miles away from the nearest city but but some magical guy who actually studied in Paris uh, has, has created this thing out of so, so that sort of thing is real one of the things that I, when I look at this and this is not true just of this novel but of other Pat McKillop novels that you realize how intricate they are only toward the end. And there are parts I would like to have expanded upon that uh, wouldn't have added anything to the to the novel and would have probably interrupted the structure. I like the funny bits. I like the idea that these knights going off on a quest and getting caught in a traffic jam are, to some extent, yeah. my python knights. They're not very good knights. <laughs> um,
1: they're not. And I love that bit. You know, when they're at that kind of weird—is it a tournament or a practice thing? And then Pierce turns up, and he has deli knife skill. Yes. <laughs> He's, <actually yeah>. <laughs> He's slicing fruit and vegetables on the field. <laughs> that, was, that was really cool. <laughs> Very it's, silly. It's, it,
0: well. So, so this is sort of like Monty Python meets cr- the Karate Kid yeah. kind of a moment, right? He's almost yeah, waxing yeah. on and waxing off, and you're thinking, "Okay, <laughs> fine." And, of course, the, the the moment that makes it all gel is when the man who he doesn't know at that point is his brother. Yeah. More spoilers, but that's the nature of this. Um, yeah, that. Plays along. You know, it's like, well, okay. Yeah. You know, it's like you show up. There's the, the, They have an announcer. I mean, for, come on. It, yeah, they, <laughs> they have an announcer, and the announcer sees this guy in the back in kitchen gear and kind of goes, come on yeah. down and tell us all about yourself, and yeah. what, what, are you, what are your skills? And he's going, I've got this knife I stole, I guess. So the knife... And he does his thing, and it's kind of hilarious. And then suddenly, and actually, for, if it wasn't for the fact that you become very, become very clear, the knife is—it's well, always clear—the knife is magical. So, to some degree, it is as a magic object is leading him through the quest he needs to go on, and that's what yeah. forgives, if you like, the mad happenstance that the one person he happens to fight is his brother.
2: Yeah, that was a nice thing in
0: there. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I mean, there's that element where you're kind of going, really? That That's what's going to happen. You're going to show up for the first <laughs> time ever, and the first person you encounter is going to be the person that you need like to find. Uh, no, partly, I'm sure, as well, because it also removes the caper element of having to wander, wander around Sivir Luna looking so that you can then resolve what? that plot. That yeah, problem. finding
1: a path. be hell.
0: Yeah. But also, I mean, and then that beca- what, what ties that so neatly and what makes it pay is it builds a relationship between uh, Pierce and his brother, and then his. Yeah. Father, so that they can come back in a plausible relationship, and they have to go through these things on the way back. You know, where they are beset by the evil sorceress and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah
3: that that yeah. beset by the evil sorceress bit. Uh, we, did, did was that just to pad out the quest a bit more? Because where does that fit? It, it just is that just so that the brothers could bond a bit more. Is that is that? I know I am speaking plot mechanics here, but just how do people read that 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 section? Because it just it, 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 I, I, I didn't know which I, like like who's this sorceress I, I'd forgotten that I actually thought it was Heloise who was doing all this at one point only to find out no no she's actually chased this woman away but uh, um, th- that came out of the blue that whole fake house whatever yeah. was going on that... hello
0: mm-hmm. well okay I think it serves two purposes and everyone else might disagree but I'll put this out there and then we'll see I think it serves two purposes. The first purpose is, yes, it, it builds a relationship between Pierce and his father and brother. Second is, it plays off the, per, the perceived relationship and character of his mother. She's built as this terrible threat, which ultimately she yeah. will never be to them, but she's portrayed that way. And having the evil sorceress there makes that more credible and adds more tension to the story as you're heading north and back towards Kamira Bay. That's but, my feeling about but it.
3: But the evil sorceress motivation is that she wants to shag Leith. And and I just didn't know where that was coming from. I, 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 was this something we were meant to be aware of that that, that he's had? Maybe he's had more than one uh, lady on his journeys. I don't know, but, but it was just odd. It just felt out of place I, to I, a well, degree.
0: Well, I'm curious, I mean, uh, Nikki and uh, Gary, what you thought. But I'm not sure exactly. Okay, the evil sorcerer's motivation. I'm not sure about. Other than maybe she mm-hmm. was distorted by the local by the magical powers at play. If you like, she's being pushed okay. by the barrier in the quest. You know, it's like it's just like when. Uh, the knights are all, dri- you know, when when they're in the car and they're driving along, and suddenly all the, all, the, all the power dies and they're stranded because that's what needs to happen for the story to work. And so magic magic makes it happen. When Pierce has his accident and ends up in Camira Bay on the way there, that's part of the magic of the story, forcing it to happen. Yeah. Yes, no. What
2: do you think? I'm kind of with you. I mean, it seemed arbitrary to me. It it was suspenseful for what it amounted to, but it. Um, it, it felt arbitrary at the time. I was enjoying the suspense of it, but I, I didn't know what it was, where it was going or coming from.
0: What do you think, Nikki?
1: Well, I don't know. I was trying to think about you know those and saga is such a tangled knot. I don't, I don't know that it's from there. But in the in the novel itself, yeah, it was a, it was weird, wasn't it? Was it just weird? Because isn't she a chimera? Doesn't she come in a chimera form?
0: Y- is it? Oh, uh, yes. No. Yes. no Basilisk, isn't it, or something? So it's a, a rooster and a. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a it's, it's a basilisk or something. I think.
1: Right. Okay.
0: That, that, that's yeah, true. and then
1: just, then they get trapped. And i was thinking it does ring a bell, weirdly. But I, oh, I'm going to have to do some research now. So... <laughs> so, oh, because
3: yeah, that's it's... what I wonder. I wondered whether it was an Easter egg that I wasn't getting. That because it just seemed
1: yeah. there was an are... odd. Arts- There are those stories, but I'm trying to think how they link up to the Fisher King or the Arthur, because the Fisher King is is sort of an Arthurian figure, you know, like Bran the Blessed, the Fisher King, and, and Arthur are all these kind of different versions of the same mythological character. And there is that, you know, Gawain and the Green Knight story. Do you know that story about how the Green Knight shows up at the court on Christmas, at Christmas, during the Christmas festival, and says, to you know presents his challenge to the court and says oh um I'll have a battle with any of your knights and y- you can take the first um shot sort of thing <laughs> not a shot but you can take the first um attack and then I'll stand undefended next year and you can strike back and um and so Lancelot in Se- no Sir Gawain gets up and he cuts the knight's head off and then the knight picks his head up and puts it back on <laughs> 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 and says you know I see you next year but later Gawain goes to his castle and is kind of bewitched by his wife and stuck there for a long time but it's but there's a I don't know what the connection is between those things like the the beheaded knight is also you know brand the blast is so there's a weird they're really tangled they're really tangled so okay. I'm not doing a good job of, of explaining it but there is connected... No.
3: You, this, you're actually do. doing a great job. You're making me want to now go and Google all this stuff.
1: Yeah, they're great stories. They're totally confusing. And I think I was thinking about what you were saying earlier, Jonathan, about, or or was it you, Gary, about in the middle, of how it becomes a bit, you know, it's huge. There are all these characters and there's this kind of layering of the Kaluna and Severin stuff and the Ravenhold and Wyvernhold stuff. And, you know, and it becomes confusing. But I was thinking, oh, yeah, but that's just what, how those stories are. They're. They're huge and labyrinthine, and you just kind of enter into them. Well, Hoping just, that
2: you uh, It's a very tangled story. I want to come back to something that Ian has mentioned a couple of times, uh, which I am fascinated by when you're talking about a, a fairly densely elusive story that deals with uh, a particular kind of mythology. And... Yeah. Maybe many of the readers aren't going to even care who the Fisher King is on this, but it's all Googleable. Have we entered into the age of the Googleable novel?
1: Uh, yes. Another...
0: Uh, yes. <laughs> no. Uh, no. No, I don't think so. I mean, I always think back when, when when this sort of topic comes up to something that Howard Waldrop always used to say, which is you know he expects the reader to do fifty percent of the work. He'll do half, yeah. the reader can do half. Uh, and he's as old-fashioned a storyteller as you'll come across, both in his own technical approach and everything else. Um, I think MacKillop... I mean, for all that Google solves the problem for the reader, and you don't have to do 50% of the read, I think she's asking you to do at least 35% of the work. You know, she's going, hey, I wrote a fantasy novel, and guess what? I put a great big spoiler on the front of it by saying, Kingfisher, so this might give you a bit of a thing. And look, there's a King Arden, which kind of sounds like Arthur... Maybe you yeah. want to just be aware. The point where she probably plays fair, and whether she plays fair enough, is maybe something to touch on. Is if you don't like, if you don't sit there going, "Oh wow, that's the, the Fisher King myth," and I don't, and that, that, that's obviously you know, Arthur's court and blah blah blah. It still it still works. The the, the story yeah. still plays. It's just that there's that's... more to it, and there's bits of it you're left sort of wondering, how does it plug in? But it still functions.
3: I think. Yeah, yeah. I... I... Yep. Oh sorry. Go no, you me. go ahead. You go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say I think, you know, you can kind of have it both ways, can't you? Can't you have a novel that is rewarding in and of itself because it's rich in itself and makes sense, as you say, Jonathan, but but then is also open to this kind of double reading. It invites you to read other books. So it's it's in conversation with all these other stories. And I you know, I think I think you can have it both ways, maybe. Okay.
2: I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, one of Tim Powers' novels has the gangster Bugsy Siegel as the Fisher King. And yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, some of the people who read the gangster part of it don't know about the Fisher King, and some of the Fisher King people may not know about gangsters in Las Vegas. But the novel works as a novel either
3: way. See, so I know Bugsy Siegel because he's a Yid, and my dad <laughs> uh, my dad actually, this is true, my dad gave a whole speech at the synagogue at shul and, um, one one thing uh, one day on um, on all the Jewish uh, gangsters, of which Bugsy was one of the yeah. know, main <laughs> ones. So so for me, Bugsy would be fine. If Bugsy had been in this book, I'd be all over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, I mean,
0: Powers not wrote not one but two Fisher King novels, which just goes shows oh, a little bit obsessed with the whole thing. Yeah, but you know, um, I think the th- the thing that I take away from 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 this is. This, this is one of those books that you could, I mean, I don't know if I will because of time, you could easily read twice or three times, get more out of it on rereading and appreciate further. And that to me suggests that it's a a substantial book, maybe is the way I'd put it. Not necessarily an yeah. intrinsically better or more important, but just a substantial book. This is a, a, a thought about book. You know, it's, it's been mm-hmm. some several years since you know a you know, previous novel. I forget exactly how many, maybe three, six, four,
2: six years. Six, two thousand and ten.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think she's been sitting on her hands. I think she's been compiling this. I think this has probably been a lot of work.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, she, I, yeah, yeah, You could yeah. No, okay, go ahead, John. Jonathan. Finish your thought.
0: No, no, just just, and I, I I think she's rewarded with a strong novel, and we're we're given one. You know, I mean, I'd be curious at this at this stage in the conversation. Would you all recommend this book to someone else? Hell yeah!
3: Yes, yes absolutely.
0: <laughs> did you actually, all else aside, enjoy reading it? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I
1: did. And I was thinking, you know, earlier, Jonathan, you were saying, um, I think it was you um, that that you resisted it as you were going in. Was it that you? That, yeah, it that? was me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking, oh, no,
0: I didn't. I kind of opened it up and went, oh, food, hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, see, I, I, I did that. It was the world-building bit that kept – it. Kept, I felt like I wanted to dive in and I dove, yes. dove into other books of hers, but this one kept kind of pushing me back out.
3: Oh. I definitely think there's an oil and water aspect to the world-building, world which didn't mm. 100% work for me, but – and like I said, my interest was with Carrie, who doesn't, uh, who disappears for half the novel, but – I still would recommend it because it is, it is so, first off, it's, it's a standalone novel. Yay. Hey, uh, set, which just on, on its own is a big plus. Yeah. Second off, it is so packed with stuff. I mean, you're never really sure what's going to happen and how it's all going to come together. You have a faint idea, but you're never really sure. And, and I think she pulls off the emotional stuff right at the end. And, and which makes every, as you said, Jonathan, makes everything else what comes before give it just that more resonance and, yeah, I, I definitely, I would definitely recommend it. Can I just ask one controversial question? Just one yeah. slightly controversial question.
1: Just one?
3: Yeah, just one. Um, okay. And I probably should have done this 20 minutes ago. But um, I was always understanding that the Arthurian stuff was either co-opted and or part of Christianity because of the whole Holy Grail, Risen, resurrected God, sort of situation. Is that right, or am I wrong, or is it a is it wrapped up with paganism? I I'm just interested because because in this book it's clearly pagan or multi God or mm. poly God like. It's and obviously there's no Christian element. But I always was maybe it's Raiders of the Lost Not Raiders is the of the Lost Ark or, or the whole the third one um, that's got me all confused about Thorian and legend and and Jesus and Christianity. So given given with given it's Easter and uh, you know.
0: <laughs> he, will rise, et yeah. he will rise,
3: etc. A Jew says he will rise. You know, I just wondered: is, what's the connection? Nicky, you know, and... it... <laughs>
1: is that mean? So it does get co-opted, but it's older than that. So in the Mabinogi of you know, the Welsh text narratives, there's a character, Bran the Blessed, and he's he's a kind of pre. Um, pre version of Percival and he has a cauldron that can resurrect the dead Um, okay, the same thing and but the dead are resurrected without their voices. So they they're they're zombies <laughs> that's, that's not historically accurate use of that term. <laughs> but they rise from the dead and they and but they can't speak and he gives it to his sister Bramwen on her wedding day She marries the king of Ireland and he gives it to her as a gift and actually, just like in this book, Brandon kind of, re, re, um, yeah, he regrets his decision and and goes to war against Ireland to get the cauldron back, so to recover Okay, a magical
2: yeah. vessel. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay.
1: Sorry, I lost. Have I lost?
2: There are, I understand, any number of magical vessels uh, yep. and other prior to Christianity and. And once you've got a magical vessel, then the Holy Grail fits into that. Well, Christianity sort of maps onto a lot of earlier mythologies that way, doesn't it?
1: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, who knows at what point that happens. It's probably a process, isn't it? Like, rather than just there's one point at which those pagan and, and older mythic images and ideas, you know, Christianity maps itself onto them and adopts them and borrows them. I, and you know, part of that—I'm sure—I remember learning as an undergraduate. Part of that in Europe, at least, is um, put down to the Romans. You know, trying to to conquer by adopting mythology and symbolism, and saying you can keep you can keep your um, symbols, but we'll read them in this different way, and then we'll become Christian, and, and they'll all get kind of confused and layered over each other.
3: Maybe okay. Well- so and, and and the Fountain of Youth stuff, the Ponce de that that all connects to this, or is it separate?
1: Yeah, so the cauldron is sometimes a fountain of youth, sometimes. See, isn't there even a – there's an ancient Greek cauldron where you cut up your father. <laughs> she cuts the woman's <laughs> This is not a recipe. So she cuts <laughs> her father up and put him in the cauldron because he's old and he asks her to, and then he comes out young again. So he's reborn young. But she forgets his tongue, so he can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoops, that's a, that's a mistake. So I think that they're related, and I think they're related in MacKillop's book to the um, to the is it a pond at the end yeah. where the kingfisher is? Uh, yes,
3: yeah. yeah.
1: So that the the physical cauldron, which is this weird dirty object, is metonymically linked to the to a body of water, to a well, or a body of water that's more natural.
3: I'm so glad we did this podcast. Because <laughs> I've learnt so much, <laughs> I was ignorant of.
1: They're cool stories, aren't they? Cool stories.
3: Oh no, they're great. They're great. I mean, you know, I have a different set of stories around the yeah uh, the, the the Midrash and fables and Asmodeus yeah. and things like that. But uh, but this is this is great. No, I'm I'm, this, I'm fascinated. It's great. I love it. Well, I, I, I could listen to you speak about it for another hour, Nikki. You know, yeah. it's, I'm 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 serious. Let's not do that. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Let's let's not do that and say that we did. But you're okay. Like, you right, to Cool. Me about the midrash. I, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I haven't read yeah, no, the
3: story. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all the the sort of apocryphal biblical stories. You know, what what Moses was really doing uh, before he split the sea. That sort of stuff. Which okay. is all 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 in. It's all, all covered in the Talmud, and it's all or and it's it, it's not it's sort of apocryphal is not the right word because apocryphal means something very specific, and they're not mm-hmm. really there. But they're, they're they're these stories that the that the Talmud goes through, um, usually to make some sort of point around halacha, Jewish law, and mm-hmm. and they are they're, they're like the inside commentary on what X biblical figure was doing at Y time, and you know when it's when it refers to the nephilim in Genesis, what does that what does that actually mean? Who the nephilim were, and more detail around that sort of stuff. That's that's um, so so the midrashim uh, uh, are critical pieces. There's always been a question as to whether you're meant to take them literally or not, and that's a a, a, a rabbinical question, but Mm. they're they're really... And and one of the ones that I loved, sorry to completely derail this podcast, was the story of Ashma Day, Asmodeus, who is the the demon or shade who comes and literally takes king solomon and kicks him thousands and thousands of miles away from the kingdom forcing him to act as a beggar to finally get back his throne and it's a whole story about how he does it and what ashma day does in his because ashma day then shape changes into king solomon and what ashma day does in his place and you know um that it's a whole it's great and that's 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 the sort of thing that i grew up with which is yeah. a bit different to king arthur
2: You've con- you convinced me, Ian, that we need to do a separate podcast that deals with this kind of material because so yeah. much of what you see in heroic fantasy and traditional fantasy is based on Christian mythology. Yeah. But then there's this other tradition which includes writers as diverse as Jane Yolen and Harlan Ellison and Peter Beagle and recently Stephanie Feldman. There is a rich fantasy tradition, a literary fantasy tradition, which which draws on exactly what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about the Golem and the Ginny.
3: Is that, is that? Don't that? get me started. Don't get me started on
1: that book. Get,
3: <laughs> I can't speak. I can't speak for the Ginny side of it, but I yeah. can speak for the Golem side. And yeah, don't get me started. Like, the, the way I described it was a Disneyified version of what the Golem oh, is. Oh, okay.
1: Disneyifying yeah. is
3: yeah. yeah. It's evil. Now, Real. now she she Helen Wrecker, Re- is Jewish, so you know, I mean. There's all that argument of is it is it appropriation if you're of the faith or whatever, yeah. um, but but oh yeah I have real it, it's this whole idea of that that there are just these kabbalistic texts lying around that rabbis know about and can just mm. create a golem overnight if they need to which is mm. which is this very much a sort of Disney you know happy chappy rabbi sort of picture that just bugs me to shit because it's it's yeah. It's not the whole thing about Kabbalah and and the, and, the, and the whole idea of sod and oh, look. You're getting me onto a. See, so you started me. we going to do the fisher I the
1: fishing I, thing, I mean isn't I, that, that I, maybe that's one of the reasons why that Arthurian stories are are kind of available to fantasy writers because no nobody nobody's faith is attached to them anymore. If if it ever was, you know, when we don't. You're not in conflict or even in conversation with a living faith and a living, you know. But aren't think.
3: you, when you talk about the grail itself, I mean, isn't that the receptacle for Jesus' blood?
1: Yeah, but, yeah. you know, not really. I mean, in Macaulay's novel, not really. In Macaulay's novel, I think the grail, you know, the cauldron. Did they call it the cauldron, not yeah. the grail? Yeah, it's, 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 not, it's yeah. not called
3: the grail. I just read it yeah, as the grail it's because the that's a, yeah. and
1: Yeah, you know, it's not Monty Python's grail. It's not, <laughs> <laughs> not Malcolm's grail. And, yeah. I don't think she's linking it to Christian
3: faith. No, no, she deliberately isn't, or well, not even deliberately. She's not. That's not in the intention. It's no, mm. I know, but it's just I couldn't help but overlay my own uh, very scant knowledge on this. So that's yeah. because the because the God, the the, the the male God, does get resurrected. So it, it felt, mm. yeah. yeah. So yeah. So anyway, but um, yeah. yeah. But I
1: think that's a that's a strong theme in Celtic mythology mythology, and lots of them, isn't it? Roman mythology, it's there. I know in Welsh, so my father was a Welshman and it's there. and the Welsh stories of brand, this idea of the resurrected king. So,
2: Evangeline
1: Sorry?
2: That Evangeline Malton did the Mabinogi then to get great length in one of the great early fantasy series.
1: Yeah. 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 So they're they're there. I think that's, you know, one of the common Mm. and I, they're interesting because they always have this kind of um, eternal feminine and the the much more ephemeral masculine figure who dies and is resurrected. But he, you know, he's like the seasonal god, god of summer, god of spring, who has to die in the winter.
3: Wow! And so then this be. This re- is all. This is all brilliant stuff. I mean, and I'm. That's why I'm glad we read this book because it is the uh, the, uh, the jumping off point for this sort of discussion, which is which is great because I'm learning stuff.
1: I that's really great. love this book. Just in case you're in any doubt, I really love this book. I'll be reading more MacKillop and going back into the archives. But I really thought it was rich and elusive, and I love the food, and I love the humor, and I really like Carrie. And I almost I was thinking, Ian, I almost like that she disappeared because that's what her father does too. Yeah. You know how Merle disappears
0: yeah,
1: orphan comes back? And I was like, oh, she's gone off like Christ in the, you know, those blank 40 years in the Bible she's gone off to become whatever she needs to become. Yeah, And then we'll come oh. back.
2: Let me, let me let me add a quick plug, if you want to see more McKillop the, this summer, the Dreams of Distant Shores, which is a short fiction collection that includes her novellas, Strange, uh, is being published by Ted Books, along with an essay by her called Writing High Fantasy. Oh, awesome.
0: That should be interesting. I mean, one thing I want to say just quickly about this as well, and this is maybe just my own... Hang up. If somebody says to me that there's a new book out by someone whose work I like, but it's not their best work, sometimes oh. I don't bother reading it. Oh, Now, this book is not McKillop's best book, but it's okay. really worth reading. I mean, I think yeah. it's a really good book. I think sometimes yeah. I can be too easily distracted from reading a book from somebody, and we put an unfair benchmark on them because they wrote a great book at one point. And I don't, by that I mean, I don't mean just a good one, but a really remarkable book. And so we yeah. overlook the other kind of strengths that they have. Um, yeah. And MacKillop is a writer who, even though I mean, this is a very, very good book, I don't think it is a great novel. Yeah. Um, I, I think... Sorry? But it's worth reading. Oh, it's well worth reading. Um,
2: yeah. I, 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 I And just to quickly take exception to the notion that that a writer is trying to do something comparable to what that same writer did earlier every time out. I mean, you don't necessarily, for example, you you could read Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia, which I think is a brilliant novel. But I also think you could say, well,
0: it's no Wizard of Earthsea.
1: No, it's not! (laughs) It's not! I think it's there's some...
0: <laughs> it is a different no. cauldron every time. It is a different cauldron every time, but <laughs> and maybe like I said, this is this is my kind of thing. It's like I love Tim Powers. I haven't read his last three books because people keep telling me they're not his best work. <sighs> you know, I mean, he's got a new book out called Medusa's Web, and I'm kind of like, Wah. everyone says, ah, oh, you know, look, at, it's a it's a pretty good Tim Powers book. It's not a great Tim Powers book, and you're going, well, is that remotely fair to the book? I mean, I could say to the, to about. Kingfisher—it's a good book, but hey, it's not, you know, Ombre and Shadow or something. And you'll sit there and go, "Well, that's stupid." I just, this book was worth reading its own grounds, its grounds. and I think we get a lot of stuff thrown in our way uh, when when we when it comes to reading books. Uh, You're read- right. It doesn't
3: take much to pop the balloon for you to go from "I want to read this" to "eh." Yeah, yeah. Know, and I'm- just like j- j- just to date this podcast, just like all the critics uh, on Batman versus Superman, which I was really keen oh, to see. I'm not sure now. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want to go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but but what, what's the MacKillop you would. What's the McKillop you. What, what do you think is her best or one of the best works? Okay. You mentioned a few. And you too, Gary. I'm curious. Well, for me, I
0: really loved Winter Rose. I really loved Ombre in Shadow. And I really loved Odd Magic. I mean, I think they're really terrific books. And I have to say, the Riddle Master books are classics for a reason.
3: They're really, really mm-hmm. cool.
2: Okay. Gary? Mm-hmm. I would have. I have not read all the recent novels, so I would have to mention the Riddle Master books as, as being that sort of thing. But I'm curious, both for me and Nikki, you both said this is the first MacKillop you've read. So to yes. some extent, would you would you want to read more MacKillop on the basis of this? Yes. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I was a bit embarrassed to confess that I'd not read
0: more of her work.
1: But I thought it's best to be honest. But
0: I Um, I, I also don't think you should ever be embarrassed admitting that. Ever, ever, ever. There's so much stuff to read. There's an impossible amount of stuff to read. Of course there's people you have never read.
2: But my point, Jonathan, for you and I are probably in a disagreement is if somebody has read a new Pat McKellop novel and are impressed by it, the last thing they want to hear is, well, you should have read that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a (laughs) little
0: bit. But what I what I hope they'd take it as is if you like that one, wait till you try this one.
1: Yeah, okay, it's really going to
0: blow up. Because yeah. um, I mean, it's hard to say that someone who's received a life achievement award from the Royal Fantasy Awards is underrated or anything like that. But but she, I think she's one of those writers who can be a little invisible.
3: She doesn't. Yeah. Face- well, the fact. The, the, yeah. I mean, I was. I I knew of her. It's not like I didn't – I don't know who Patrick McKillop is, but I've not, not felt any urge compulsion to read her work, which was why I was really excited to do this, because I felt, well, it's, you know, it's time to, to redress that. But you're right. There's an invisibility – There's the, it's the same with Jane Yolan Is a writer I've never read. And you've mentioned uh-huh. – uh, you know,
2: uh, there's, there's those
3: – and maybe the – I don't know if I'm don't want to gender this. Maybe it's female writers. I don't know. Maybe it's a deep-seated unconscious prejudice about fantasy and it's often written by women. There you go. There's a generalisation I've just made. Oh! Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I've just, I've just, I know, I've just shot myself in the head and foot. I've just done a Fisher King, um, but, um, but there are a bunch of authors of that period seventies, eighties, nineties who I've never looked at. You know, so um, and, and and to my to my and to my loss, I was reading Stephen King at the time, so I can talk I, this about I can talk okay, about Stephen King at length.
2: An element of that is not only are they are, are they women writers, they're women writers of a certain generation, and and I know I know well both Jane and Pat, and they are two of the least self promotional writers I've ever met. Uh, mm-hmm. They want their works to be out there and stand for themselves, but they they don't do much in the way of social media. They don't do much in the way of uh, public statements, and uh, it's just the, the kind of writer that used to be you know the professional writer that would put out a good book every few years. And they can do that, even though I'm sure their publicists and agents are saying, well, you don't have enough platforms, you've got to tweet, you've got to be on Facebook, you've got to be on Snapchat. Yeah. Uh, they just aren't interested in doing that. They're interested simply mm-hmm. in writing, and that may seem a little bit old-fashioned, but I don't think their writing seems old-fashioned. No.
0: I mean, I, I, also, I'm, that's why I'm really glad we read Kingfisher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, if you like, they, they suffer from different issues, though. I mean, to me, Yolan suffers from a particular issue for someone who's never read Yolan, and it's the same problem that Michael Moorcock suffers from vastly prolific where do you start
3: mm-hmm. yeah
0: but uh, well, McKillop tends to fa- write sorry yeah
2: in fairness to Jane she has 300 plus books of which 250 or so are children's books or even board books yeah. so the fantasy the fantasy oeuvre of Jane Yolan is not really that large yeah.
0: look there's two or three really major adult fantasy novels in amongst all of that Briar Rose and one or two others the Sister Light yeah. Sister Dark books which are terrific, Um, and the rest you're sort of filtering through to find. Um, With MacKillop, I think one of the things is she doesn't write series, by and large. She writes fairly short standalone books in a a mythic kind of area. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just sort of like, even this one, it's a great book, but it's sort of like, if if I describe it as a low-key book, do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah I, know yeah, I
1: think it. so. And you think because these days there's that sense, you know, you have to have an elevator pitch for your novel. Yeah, it has yeah. to be something new and different and sexy and weird. And and even though I think this novel is really interesting in terms of its gender politics, it's not like right on the edge of gender politics. Like no. I've been just spent months reading the tip Tree entries yeah. and for this year and it's not... It's not where those books are. It's not at the edge of that stuff. And it's not at the edge of fantasy. And us who in fantasy, is not a new thing, really. So it's not kind of pushing any envelopes. So it's hard for it to take a space, I think, in a really noisy social media mm. reviewing, you know, that really noisy conversation where things, I think, have to be kind of weird or new or different to stand out. and and Or even just a new author. You know, there's always that kind of new, oh, who's this new person? That's really sad. Yes, so, She's this old old I mean, old school, not really, but you know she's one of the great matriarchs, um, And yeah, maybe that renders her a little bit invisible. I was at the at NatCon yesterday in Brisbane, and there was a panel, you know, and they're talking about female heroism, and um, I think Kathleen Jennings was saying, you know we keep we keep saying we need more women' rights, we need you know this kind of visibility, and particularly around diversity." So not just white women writers. Mm. And and Kathleen was saying, but there's always been women writers, and she, she kind of listed them off back into, the, you know, the dark ages sort of thing. But we're always erasing them, um, not necessarily explicitly, but just by forgetting to bring them forward into the conversation and honour that that history, honour that kind of legacy. Um, and, you know, MacKillop isn't isn't part of our legacy. She's still alive oh, yeah. <laughs> and writing, and still writing good books,
3: yes. you know. But there's, and, there's, and writing a book that you will not have read a book like this before.
1: Yeah. Why? No, no, I don't think I've no, read a a a i read No, in a
3: positive way. I, in a positive but way, but I'm, I'm saying.
1: And Arthurian sagas and bikey gangs. I don't, I don't read. <laughs> no,
3: but that's the point because you can say, well, you know, she's just churning out and she's not because it's six years between no, books. So no, she's no, clearly not churning thing. out. But, but you, no, no, I know, I know. But you, you could argue, you being the general, you could argue, well, invisibility because you know, I, I read her stuff in the seventies and what she's done, and she's not doing anything different these days. Well, I, given I haven't done any of that, but I read this book and I think I've not seen anything like this. This I'm not saying it's unique, but just this this me, this meshing of, as you said, Bikie gangs, Heston Blumenthal, Thorian Legend, and uh, and a bunch of other stuff um, is is different. It's yeah. It's new on the palette. <laughs> and, and powerful, I
1: think, yeah. I think that goes back to that thing you're saying. Really right at the beginning of our conversation, Ian, about the way these books are um packaged, you know, that or not this one in particular perhaps, but you know, they're kind of packaged in a way that might suggest that they're classic seventies, eighties fantasy that doesn't have that new edge or a kind of contemporary spin or a different spin. So, you know, maybe maybe they're not placed in the market in a way that emphasizes that they are contemporary works and they are in conversation with the contemporary world
0: and ideas. But but even though, I don't know how you you deal with that. I mean, Ace brilliantly marketed MacKillop in the mid-90s. Brilliantly. And if you go back and look at the books online, you can see that. This book is... I mean, I'm I'm looking at the cover of the book now. I don't quite know how you would uh, package it to really catch the eye. The the, The package it's done is very attractive looking, but it's very subdued, very it's passive. Enough.
1: Yeah, it doesn't tell unique. anything about the book, does it? Like, not a
0: thing. No, it's like wispy, watery stuff with a, a face and nothing much yeah. more. And it's beautiful, oh, but it's not. No, and and you'd walk past it in a hundred times in a bookshop. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's that is yeah. Oh my- Floating underwater, which seems to be a universal icon for book covers these days, well, no matter and, what the and,
0: book is. And tonally, it actually looks not unlike a much more dramatically different book, The Dr- The Drowning Girl by Caitlin Keenan. Oh, yeah. It has some, yeah. some kind of color kind of thing, and um, but it doesn't tell you that that's what this book is. And this book, even at times, though it's very funny, it's not a very cartoonish or or, uh, or comic book in that sense, but it has some yeah. of those elements that could be brought out. So, I mean, I suppose all we can take away, and we should get to the end of this... Is, if not, yeah. I've got to go out in a while. Is that um, this is a book that you might overlook? It is an author yeah. you may feel like you know, uh, yeah. and so you can set this aside. But if you do, you will lose something in your reading experience. This is a really substantial, worthwhile book by a major writer who's delivered a new work, and I say that even acknowledging that she has the same agent that I do. Um, mm. So if there's a, if that's a conflict of interest, but. Yeah. It's It's really really worth it. I mean, go out and buy the book. I I, I mean, hopefully that's what these podcasts are about. They're saying, we've read books, and either we think that they're worthwhile or not. We've all made it pretty clear. We think this is a worthwhile book. If you're listening and you've not read it by some insane chance, and you still think that something can get out of it after all this, after an hour and 20 minutes of us telling you all the details about it, go get it. It's really worth it. That's my feeling.
1: Yeah, it's really worth it. And imagine the cover with, you know, that celebrity chef, Todd English, on the cover. Yeah. With his letters flying, (laughs) and then Brianna Tarr standing in the road.
3: (laughs) I think that's a perfect note to end on.
0: I think so. Well, with that, thank you so very, very, very much, Nikki, for making the time to talk to us today. It's been a delight.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: It's been really really wonderful. I hope I've brought something to the conversation. Definitely A a lot. A lot. Gary? Thank you for being part of the round table again. Again. And hopefully we'll do it again. Oh, this is fun. I love spoiling
2: novels for people who haven't read them.
0: (laughs) Well, we do tell people (laughs) they should have read the novel before they listen to this. We're pretty clear about it. (laughs) But if they want to go down that path.
2: Ingenuous, Jonathan. It's disingenuous.
0: (laughs) And Ian... Yes. Thank you for coming up with this. the wild inspiration again to do this, and we'll, we'll, we'll show up again next month talking about another book.
3: Yeah, which I we haven't just, decided yet.
0: No, no, but it, maybe it'll be the Guy K book. We'll see.
3: You, yeah, you're maybe. desperate to read that, aren't you? Ah, there's that. Yeah.
0: There's the Lavi Tidhar book. There's a few around we can choose from, so we'll email will yeah, right, right, let cool. everybody know after that. So anyway, right. thank you too, and to everybody listening, thank you for your time. We will be back next month.